Welcome back to another episode of 25 Stories That Made MLS. I am your host, Nital Raman, and as always, my brother is here, Toodle Raman, MLS nerd expert. I still don't know if I'm an expert. Definitely a nerd. All right, so for episode five, I guess I won't be using the word expert, but I'm definitely going to call him a nerd. <laughs> I guess I asked for that. We're here, uh, story number four. Yeah. Um, and this is a good one. This is called Bradenton. Um, Braden? What? Bradenton. It's uh, Bradenton. 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 Yeah, and it's uh, who's that? It's uh, it's a. Uh, city in florida actually oh it's a place yeah but the story is actually about how kind of um the face of mls changed from uh, older players that they got from europe um even if they were american to developing their own players and it starts way back in 1998 so this is a mls man are we ever going to leave the 90s we will eventually uh, it's just so many important things happen in the 90s that affect MLS. Are we doing these in order? Yeah, dude. Man. <laughs> you, should we not do them in order? Yeah, I'm just kidding. Man. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I just, I just really want to... I get really excited when you uh, talk about something that I was alive for. And I was alive for this. <laughs> I was alive for this. But mentally, maybe not. Just yeah. uh, focus on being a kid. Anyway... But that's the beauty of what we're talking about is like, I must tell you a story that you know nothing about, but the end result, you'll see why it affects us. Okay. I that's guess, the point. I guess that is the point. That's the point of this All podcast. Right, you're, you're correct. I'm glad we wasted about a minute on that. Did we waste a minute? Yeah. Or was it hilarious? So 1998. Okay. You were, you were nine years old. At the time. <laughs> yeah, I was. I um, was nine years old. But more importantly, MLS is in its third year, and things are not going that well. I mean, uh, attendance is dropping. There's a few things that I think are positives, like there's two new teams that are expanding in um, in Chicago and uh, Miami. And uh, they also have the, the next World Cup, the first one in, in league history coming up. So they're really stoked about that. They think um, they uh, league officials are like, hey, this is going to be – as important as the 94 World Cup was um, in that that started the league, this is going to make the league even bigger. Um, and ahead of the, the World Cup, the uh, officials in U.S. soccer were basically thinking, you know, we qualified for 1990, we hosted in 94, we got out of groups. In 1998, I bet you we get into, like, uh, the knockouts and maybe win a knockout game. They're thinking, you know, how do we become competitive to actually win this whole thing by the year 2010? 2010? That's yeah. what they're projecting? Yeah. And so... I mean, oh, we should have done so much better. I know. The we should have done so. And then if we made it, like if we didn't lose to Ghana, we would have had Uruguay next. And that's yeah. manageable for for a quarterfinal. That team... It's a manageable game for a quarterfinal. Yeah, the, the 2010 the 2010 team had a route. Yeah. They had a route. Um, and it was a really good team. It was, it, was a, good. it was a great team. But back in 98, they were thinking 2010 is the, is the time frame where we want to be competitive to actually win the whole thing. And so they uh, asked this guy named Carlos Quiroz. Quiroz. Um, Quiroz. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and he's, he's a Portuguese manager. Um, he 
grew up actually in Mozambique way back mm-hmm. in the day where when Portugal ran Mozambique. Um, eventually moved to Portugal, managed the Portuguese U20 teams that won back-to-back championships, turned that to managing the full team in, in Portugal, which is a big job, and then managed Sporting Lisbon, which is one of the biggest, yeah. you know, uh, clubs in all Isn't that of... where Cristiano Ronaldo started his career? Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, it's one of the biggest clubs in Portugal and honestly one of the bigger clubs in all of Europe. And uh, But for 1996, they... Um, Carlos Quiroz comes to the U.S. and manages the Metro Stars. Yeah. Right? So this big European manager comes in uh, to the league, right, and, and manages the Metro Stars, and it's a huge get. It's a huge get. Um would you say the first like international profile for a coach? I would say he's one of the first for sure. Yeah, I mean that first nineteen ninety six year had a, quite a few players as well. Um, but uh, yeah, from a coach standpoint, it's a pretty big get. Um, now the Metro Stars didn't do that well. They finished seventh in the league out of ten teams, um, and uh, they get they lose in the first round of the playoffs uh, in penalty kicks, and then he leaves to Japan after the first year. So maybe he wasn't really interested in staying in U.S. and maybe he's following dollars. But the U.S. soccer leadership was kind of enamored. They were like, this European coach had a lot of success with youth development in Portugal, coached at the biggest stage in both a national team and a club level, Mm -hmm. and then also came to the U.S. So they asked him to make a report and saying, what would it take for American soccer to make that giant leap forward. Oh, was it just like a uh, hundred pages of him typing laugh noises? <laughs> um, no, I mean, he took it seriously. Also, he's getting paid for this, right? Mm. And I think, uh, um, but yeah, so they, they hired him. And so he goes and then conducts all these interviews across the U.S. Um, and this is in the beginning of 1998 before the World Cup. Fast forward a few months, he's doing his interviews. While he's doing the interviews, the World Cup actually happens. And it's led by, that World Cup squad is led by the most famous players in MLS at the time. We're talking like Brian McBride. We're talking Kobe Jones, um, Alexi Lalas. 16 of the 22 players are from MLS. So it's Mm -hmm. like basically MLS sending their all-star team to a certain degree that are of American All-Star team to compete in the World Cup. It's a huge, huge kind of stage for Major League Soccer. And 98 took place in France, correct? That's right. Um, and everyone was super excited to see if we can take the next step after 94. Um, and when I say this, I, I don't, I'm not exaggerating. It could not have gone any worse. It could not have gone any worse. Yeah, there's things we're not even allowed to talk about yeah. in terms of worse. Yeah. and We placed last, first of all, right? Yeah. We lose to Germany, Iran, and Yugoslavia. We end up placing last in the whole tournament. Zero mm. points. The worst of the uh, zero. I think Japan also has zero points, but we get a worse goal differential. Um, and honestly, like people in the U.S. are not impressed by this at all. How could, how could you be? Yeah. So the hopes of MLS getting that World Cup bump, gone. The hopes of MLS getting uh, a face of the league where everyone is really excited about watching that person play, also gone. Um, and U.S. soccer also stalling, right? Yeah. To a certain degree. And a few weeks after the end of the World Cup, Kirosh comes back with his report. Um, and the report, the, the title of the report is We Can Fly 2010. 
I, I need to show it to you. It is hilarious. It's like uh, the front page has an astronaut on the moon with a giant American flag. Um, it's really kind of kitschy. Wait, that's it? Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the title page of it. We can fly that's it, but like the moon is not in the in like with the soccer ball. I don't think there's a soccer ball in there. No, that's that's what I find ridiculous. There's <laughs> nothing. It's just it's just the moon landing. It's that's moon, all he used, and which we've done before. You know, yeah, it's like, it's like we've done that. Yeah, uh, but that's why it's hilarious. That report, that report will end up being called uh, the Q report or Project 2010, um, and it opens up with pretty harsh words. So Kirosh says, and I quote. What surprised me the most prior to the World Cup were the illusions about how just how good the U.S. team was. These illusions revealed a naivete which failed to come to grips with just how far the U.S. team must improve before it's ready to compete with the rest of the world. He basically was saying that's like... That's fair. And that's fair. It's fair now. If you think about us now, it's fair now, right? Um, but he was basically saying like... Americans have like this belief that we can beat anyone in any given day, which is like a common sports thing. I mean, that's because look at our other okay, look at our other sports. Yeah, who plays American football? No one really. As as well as Americans do. No one. All right, basketball originated in our country, right? Yeah. Although basketball is getting more global now. It's getting more global now, but that that they have the problem that we have with soccer. Yeah. It's the rest of the world is catching up to our standard. That's right. Right? It's not the opposite direction where we're trying to catch up to the rest of the world standard. Yeah, and I think his point was like we're trying to catch up, but we don't even know how big we have to catch up because we have this belief that we can compete with anyone at any given day, right? And so like the analogy he makes is like I mean, yeah, ninety four is pretty glamorous. I mean we got a result yeah. against Brazil. Yeah. Right? And then we beat Colombia. Yeah. in an unfortunate way for them. But like th- yeah, I, I guess the point that you're trying to make and that he's making is is the results that we happen to get in 94 very very temporary yeah he and it'll fool the average sport person especially an american sport person yeah who is used to winning and used to being the best that's a, that's right he he his analogy in the report was taking painkillers for a disease like it might make you feel better yeah but you're not actually solving the structural problem underneath the disease itself. Right, it's like taking an aspirin when there might be a tumor. Yeah, or yeah, a broken and that's, bone. And that's, yeah. Yeah, and so that analogy I think is right. And the overall um, the overall um, report is 113 pages. Honestly, a lot of it feels like what a consultant firm would do. It's mm-hmm. a lot of fluff. He actually has like these he calls them the 11 points that you need to follow and the 11 points he formatted in a way that it would be a, a soccer formation like a, i think it's like a three three four three um and he calls it the dream team i mean it's very kitschy and there's a lot of like here's how the organization should look like <laughs> you're and telling it's like, me like he basically ended up writing the book in a way where it's so easily like you can tell so easily he was just bored doing this i mean Part of it, maybe, <laughs> and also there's or it's just like he's just so used to coaching and, and being a soccer guy, he just couldn't help himself. Yeah, <laughs> I think that might be part of it. The other thing is like there's pages of organizational charts, like yeah. just like org charts. Um, so maybe he was too being too technical about it. Anyway, 
Listen, I read the whole thing. I don't recommend other people reading the whole thing. Um, but I will say this. But well, we will list in the sources. We're, we're yeah, no, you can definitely download it. I'll, <laughs> I'll put in the sources. Um, but I will say this. There's an underlying theme underneath it, which I think is right, which is his idea was if you the whole point of making the U.S. elite requires the average American playing soccer to be better than the average person in X country playing soccer. So, like, if you can get the average American who's playing soccer at 14, 15 years old to be better than the average Portuguese person, and you have the infrastructure and the coaching to be able to select the cream of the crop and further develop them, you're going to have a better soccer I mean, team. Yeah, that's just mathematically sound. It's mathematically sound. And in order to pull that off, he had kind of these structures of, like, between ages 6 to 12, you should be promoting how fun the game is. You should be promoting the basic principles. Mm-hmm. You should be finding out who has love and passion for the game. Between ages 12 and 15 or like 11 and 15, you should be having really formal training sessions on how right. to play the game properly. Muscle memory and all that. And yeah. That and, you know, I played travel soccer growing up. My coach at the time when I was like 13 or 14 never played soccer. Like, I, Same. We, we did yeah. like sprints all the right, time. Right, right, right. It's just like run fast. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not saying I would ever have been, you know, in the ODP or Olympic development squad or anything no, like we've, that. No, we've had a talk about this years ago. Yeah. If we cared a, a, about soccer the way we do now when we were little, we would be better at soccer players. And yeah. I think that's probably an argument that he's making in, in this document is if, if, if your average 14-year-old, your average American 14-year-old has soccer skills that are above any other country, then when they're adults, they're going to be better. Yeah. And you can't, I don't know how you can dispute that. Right. right. And so, like, in order to do that, you have to have kind of better coaching, better programs, better organizational structure, Mm -hmm. which is probably why he has so many org charts. But also, he said, (laughs) from age 16, your best players need to be in a professional environment, learning how to be pros. Like, at that point, everyone... who where a league comes in, right? Yeah. Everyone... Everyone at that point who played soccer was thinking, hey, I'm really good at this. Maybe I'll make the high school team, and then maybe I'll go to college. He was yeah. like, that's what's killing you. You need to identify who the best are by 16, and they should be in a professional environment, learning how to play the game and becoming good professionals. And now that's a really hard task to make from scratch in a country this size. So what U.S. soccer ended up doing, ended up doing after this report is opening up uh, a U-17 residency pro- program. So they the idea was use all the resources that we have to scout and find the best 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds in the country, bring them all into one residency program. Send them into one place. That's in Bradenton, uh, Florida. Okay. Um, so they found the best 20 uh, 16 and 17 year olds in the country using the Olympic development program and whatever scouting that they had. And the idea was to bring them in a professional environment and where they're learning about soccer, being pros, eating together, um, going to school together, doing everything together. And in the first class, they found a kid from Redlands, California named Landon Donovan. Of course. A winger from uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana named Demarcus Beasley. Beasley yeah. Uh, a defender from Olney, Maryland, named Gucciamweyu. Yeah. A winger from Philadelphia, Bobby Convey. And a midfielder from Crofton, Maryland, named so Kyle, Kyle Beckerman. Beckerman. Yeah. And um, so th- those are 
five really big names. Yeah, that was, that was our U17 team. Like, that was a, yeah. the foundation of it. Yeah, they ate together, they lived together, they played soccer together, went to school together, and they became the U17 World Cup team where they eventually came into the best ever fourth place. And actually, in that tournament, Donovan... Golden Ball. Beasley. Silver Ball. So yeah. the best two players in the entire tournament were American. Um and they would eventually lead the U.S. to multiple World Cups and collect over 457 caps or appearances for the U.S. national team. And for MLS, it was an opportunity to showcase a new face of the league, right? So yeah. instead of standing saying, hey, we're bringing people from Europe or these are the established Americans that just failed in 1998. No, MLS is now going to bring in homegrown, homegrown. Yeah. American players to be the new face of the of the league and stand for the new generation. So Beasley joined the league in uh, year 2000 to Chicago, yep, Chicago Fire. Fire. Bobby Convey joined that same year with DC United. Uh, Kyle Beckerman with Miami Fusion. And then Donovan joined a year later with um, the earthquakes. San, San Jose yep, Earthquakes. Start with the Earthquakes. Yeah. And so Donovan Beasley, I, I don't need to tell you, I probably don't have to tell anyone who's listening to this, they become the face of U.S. soccer. Definitely. And, and MLS in general, and they, they represent the turnaround of this program and the league leading it to the 2002 World Cup. Which is our best performance. Yeah, sometimes I still have dreams about Fring's handball on, on the line. Dreams? I think that's pronounced nightmares. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, showcases that MLS, um, you know, has a new face, a new sort of generational change um, that's coming uh, their way. Now, I'm sure... You know, when they saw this first class in 99, that MLS and U.S. soccer was thinking, this is awesome. Every year we're going to get five world-class players that come out of this. That's going to change the league. That's not the case. I mean, They got, they got really lucky. I mean, got, that's like an yeah, all-time great class. But there's got to be some There's got to be some players that after that, I mean, you're not going to... You're not going to find five at one time like they did before, but there's got to be other players too, right? They're, yeah, and and... So I think overall, um, throughout the years, there have been 33 national team players that have come through that. Um, some of the best players that we've ever produced, like Josie Altador, yeah. Michael Bradley, Christian Pulisic, all yeah. came through that. Oh, Pulisic too. Okay. Yeah, and so it's it's a huge, you know, um, it's a huge for, uh, entry and impact into U.S. soccer in general, for sure. Um, but... The, remember, the premise of it is that everyone who's good enough at 16 should be getting this environment. So having only one place doesn't really make sense, right? Because mm-hmm. you're you're then depending on like having the best scouts in a, in a country of 300 million people to identify, identify 20 people. And so what ends up happening in 2006 or 2007, uh, U.S. soccer starts this thing called the Development Academy, Academy or yep, the DA. DA. Um, and... Is basically is trying to replicate that elite level of play at, at a young age across the country. At the same time, MLS starts making academies. MLS teams start making academies, and they mandate that all MLS teams must have an academy at the at the same time. Which is interesting because today there there seems to be two schools of thought uh, going into the twenty fifth year of MLS. I mean, if you want to talk clubs that really, really believe in their youth system and their their academy that they have. I mean, Red Bull is definitely one of them. Yeah, right? exactly. You have an entire kind of MLS clubs whose entire identity is around developing talent. So yeah. Red Bulls, FC Dallas, Real Salt Lake, Philadelphia Union. I mean, their academies are their, you know, forefront of their identity of the, of their 
clubs themselves. Mm-hmm. And right now the DA, which honestly has more than enough um, criticism mm-hmm. in terms of how it's run, um, has over 150 uh, clubs that are in the DA, right? So if you think about it, from 2007 until today, that's a huge improvement in infrastructure of providing an elite level of play. Not to say that there's not criticism. There's a lot to be given there. Sure. But just to show you, if you see the big picture of how you, we went from no academy to Bradenton to developing that class in 1999 to changing how the league put the face of those players and saying right. that we can grow our own players to then eventually the DA happening and MLS academies start happening. And I'm sure, you know, as the league turns 25, you know, the next 25 years, they're going to think that the academies and being able to develop homegrowns is going to be much more bigger part of their um, identity and even a revenue model as you can sell players abroad. Um, but I don't know if that future that we all hope is going to happen is even possible if we fail, if we don't fail in 1998, if the Kiros report doesn't come out, and if the U17 residency program doesn't happen in Bradenton. Yeah. And that's the story of, of Bradenton and how it kind of changed the face of, of the league. I mean, probably not as fast as we would like it to change, but definitely going to change it even as we move forward to the you future. You know, I am kind of amazed that Kirosh yeah. thought that the U.S. could win a World Cup in 2010, back in the late 90s. I think, I mean... His I w- timeline was less than two decades? Yeah, I think he was... I, I Honestly, I think U.S. soccer was being optimistic. And they were like, just make it 2010. <laughs> I think, make I it think 2010. a little bit. I think just, just make it 2010. But I think his point is like, if you look at what... Again, it's easy to look at the report and be like, wow, this is a lot of hoopla in here. But if you look at the principles underneath it and mm-hmm. you're like, all right, what does it require for us to actually becoming a soccer country requires like making sure every person between ages of six and 12 can have a uh, six and 11 can have like fun with the sport and learn it the, and find passion, but also having coaches to then identify from 12 to 16, who do you want to bring in to get real serious training and have the coaching yeah. across the countries to do that? And then from 16 on, that everyone who's good enough is now in a professional environment. Huge changes that are required. Changes that we're not even fully there yet, right? I mean, yeah, I, 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 I want my honest opinion. I think college ball is kind of hurting. Yeah, I mean, kind of hurting us. I mean, if you're expecting your players to get good by the time they're in college, it might be they might be four years late. On that. I think in the general timeline of development. Coming out of college in 22. It's late. You know, it's, it's like by 22, like people are expecting for you to be on your way to the peak and height of your career. Yeah. And I would say, you know, in in our podcast and like what, how MLS has changed, it's moving more towards developing your own players, developing players at a much, much, much younger age, less dependent on the college draft. I, I but I will tell you the college draft is still important. Yeah, I, I mean, still get come players on, from Darlington, Nagby, yeah. Akron. Like, you still get some really, really, really great standout players from the from But the general world. the general change in the direction of how the league is going, I think you can bring, you see that first domino happening with the Curious Report U-17 residency in Bradenton. Mm-hmm. And that's the future. 
And that's the story of how we're going to get there. All right. As always, if you could just, you know, list off sources, one of that is going to, one of those is going to be the report itself. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, the big... You got you to gotta check out this picture of a guy on the moon, guys. You really got to really check it out. Yeah. So we'll, we'll post that. Um, the other two main pieces are um, Bradenton's residence is dead. What does it all mean? Uh, which is on the soccer wire. And then U.S. Soccer closes U-17 residence program by David Wilson and Jason Dill on Bradenton.com. And that's it, man. Episode four in the books. As always, listen to us at anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple, um, Stitcher, all that good stuff. Find us, subscribe, rate and review us, five stars only. And until then, uh, we'll see you later. As per usual, something from me, just some fact checking here. I was, in fact, nine years old in the year 1998. Follow us on Twitter, 25 underscore stories. That's at 25 underscore stories.